Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. Hello and welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive podcast. Today marks a milestone for us here at Living Leadership with this being the 50th message of Nigel Lee's, we've been able to restore and enhance the audio of and share with you through this accessible medium of podcasting. Our heart for this project has always been to share the treasure trove of audio messages provided to us by the church and family of Nigel Lee, so that more of the church might be able to be encouraged by these messages. We do hope that this archive has been an encouragement to you. Having reached this milestone of 50 episodes across the last few years, we've taken the decision to take a hiatus from posting new audio. Between now and when we're able to restart this project, we hope that you might be able to enjoy exploring the previous episodes that we have published. But if in the meantime you did want to listen to some of the unrestored audio, you can do that by finding a link on the podcast page for the Nigel Lee Archive on the Living Leadership website. You can get there by visiting www.livingleadership.org forward slash podcasts. Do stay subscribed to this feed to be the first to hear when we're back off our break and sharing more episodes from the late Nigel Lee. For now, that's all from us. So I do hand you over to today's episode, a message from Hebrews 13. Can I uh, thank you very much for your fellowship over the weekend? Uh, a special thanks to the, the committee who uh, took the risk of inviting me to come. And uh, thank you to so many of you that after the ritual opening abuse, you have been very friendly. <laughs> very friendly. <laughs> and I've understood that <clears throat> you mean well. Can I also um, thank the many Brits who have sidled up to me and said how good it has been to hear English spoken. And I have a special little word for you, the Brits. The Lord, I think, in my study of Scripture, particularly loves the despised and the contrite of heart and those that live as aliens and strangers. So be encouraged. If you have your notes in in front of you, the the printed notes, you may be uh, a little confused as to quite what the chapter is about. You see, we're coming to the end of our studies in Hebrews 11, 12, 13. And the writer has been seeking to buttress the faith of Hebrew believers and to help them to stand. Some were drifting. Some were beginning to slide. Their feet were no longer on rock, but uh, they were walking in slippery places. And some were facing persecution from fellow Jews, and they hardly knew how they could cope with what their relatives were saying and their friends and their workmates. 
And in fact, behind the whole book, behind book after book in the New Testament, there's that specter of the hardships and the suffering that would break over the church in successive waves throughout the last days and still to come. And we come now in the final chapter to a host of practical lessons. Uh, we've been speaking of heaven, we've been speaking of, of the throne of God and the most holy place in the universe and so on. And now he comes down to a, a whole number of practical implications for what we've been thinking of. I can, I can smell, as I read the chapter, smell rubber hitting road. Can't you? But if you look at your notes that I wrote, a week ago, can you see any logical order in them? No, nor can I. The, the question of the third yo of the chapter uh, is much more difficult now in this chapter than in the, the two that we have um, looked at so far. But what we're going to do is uh, come back to sound practice and simply follow the text through. And I suggest to you that this, uh, the first three verses, first few verses anyway, um, are against this background of the Christians under pressure. He was working at the end of uh, chapter 10 about the suffering that they had endured and would again. And it affected their property and it affected their jobs and their standing in society and so on. And there were times when persecution would break out in a particularly horrific way happens still among brothers and sisters all over the world. I went on the phone just recently to a good friend, uh, a pastor in Nepal. My own church has a kind of um, twinning link with a church in Nepal, and we try and send them some things and visit from time to time, and we've had uh, the Nepali brother over to uh, speak at our church weekend. And he was talking to me on the phone about brothers uh, that are in prison now, brothers of yours too, in prison in Nepal, um, the suffering that goes on is, is very, very real. And when facing persecution, the writer begins. In the light of all that we have come to know and understand, the way our horizons have been expanded, when it comes down to your own fingers in the mangle, be careful to do a number of things. Number one, make sure that you keep on loving your brothers and sisters. It's very easy not to when under pressure. Little illustration. You're packing up to go on holiday. Possibly packing up either to come here. Now, I wonder how many of you would be willing to put up your hand and confess that in the, maybe the hours before getting the car, the van, the camper, the stuff dug out, packed and in and ready, there was a little family tension. Shall we ask people to put up their hands? It is true, isn't it? Yes, hands going up, even without me asking. You can come forward at the end. But when, when there is, I mean, this is something which we need to think about, because when there is love in a team, in a, in a, in a church staff, maybe the oil is running out and, and it's getting a little bit abrasive. 
in a Christian mission environment or in a family. When there is love there, it does overcome a multitude of sins, doesn't it? The things that get forgotten, the stuff that isn't remembered, the short, quick answer. Love overcomes a multitude of sins, says the scriptures, but when it's missing, those relationships, sometimes, I've, I've been to, to many Christian conferences, and it is often the case that families need about the first 24 hours just to get their heads back together and forgive each other. And it's a bit difficult if the conference is less than 24 hours. We need to take this seriously, to be committed to being as loving, as patient, as kind, as understanding of each other when under pressure, as we possibly can be. In a pluralized society like yours and mine, what are those qualities of life that are going to help the Vietnamese neighbors that you, some of you, may have, or the Pakistani families that live down the street? What will help them see the image of God in your community. What did Jesus say? You know, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so he begins there. Keep on loving each other. You smell the rubber. Secondly, give generous hospitality to those who are driven out of their homes. That's first to flee. Or just strangers, believers, on the run, on the move, they, they've been driven. People have been driven out of their homes as believers in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Nepal, to my certain knowledge, having been there in those places in, in recent years. And the writer reminds them that actually, when people are on the move and there's insecurity, and, and if you've got a bit of space and you can put someone in there, even for a day or two, minister to them, Actually, in the Old Testament, there are a number of examples of strangers turning up at your door, and they turn out to be angels. Abraham experienced that. Gideon experienced it. Manoah. It always led to blessing on the house. So be hospitable. Keep somewhere where others can stay if you can. Very practical. And then thirdly, remember those in prison. As if you were one of them. As if they were your family. I had a colleague of mine, uh, when I worked with the student work in, in Britain, <clears throat> and for reasons you don't need to know, he finished up in prison for some time. He's out now, I meet with him regularly, um, and at his request we studied the scriptures together. And slowly, story is coming out. I visited him in the prison. I don't know whether any of you have ever done any prison visiting. It is a chilling thing. He was uh, there in the sex offenders category. And even I was abused and shouted at by the other prisoners just going to visit him. The mistreatment, the guilt feelings. He lost six stone. Not because prison food is so bad. Prison food is awful and stodgy and just carbohydrate. But he used to go running. He, he runs between six and ten miles uh, as often as he can, certainly twice a week. And I said, why do you do this? And he said, it's the only 
time that I can weep. He feels guilty, so he gets out and he runs round and round the football pitch because he's battling with the guilt and the hopelessness and the sense of being forgotten. Now, brothers and sisters of ours are in prison in some countries. Again, in countries like Nepal, in, in Pakistan, in Saudi Arabia. You think of the fuss that the Americans have been making recently about some of their prisoners of war. The Americans tied the ribbons to trees and they have all-night vigils and they do all kinds of things. But they will not forget those that have been... Well, we have brothers and sisters. Don't forget them. Include them in your prayers, says the writer here. If you believe all these great things about the kingdom of God that is unshakable, about the journey of faith that we're on, about the disciplines and shaping of our lives that goes on in the hands of a, a loving Heavenly Father, those that are particularly under the cosh at the moment, don't forget them. Pray for them. Remember them. Visit if you can. Because we're in a war too. And then he goes on in verses 4 to 6 to two more areas. Marriage and morality, first of all. And then he'll talk about money. Don't crack under sexual temptation. Don't stray from your commitments and your promises. We need to be practical and to exhort one another. In a great congregation like this, I don't know how many we've got here, somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000, there are probably dozens of you that are battling sexual temptation. There are some of you probably very close to the possibility of unfaithfulness. Because we live in a poisoned world. And I'm not so naive to think that you could gather, you know, this number of ordinary, red blood, hormone-filled people and that not be true. And we haven't touched on it very much this weekend. But the Holy Spirit in his wisdom brings us to listen to these words too. If some of you are on the edge of committing adultery, you're walking this so common Christian life where one foot in the world, one foot in somewhere like Katoomba, in Bible-teaching churches, and yet, and yet, you're being tugged and pulled. You play movies in your mind that you shouldn't. You're a sucker for some of the stuff that comes off the television and the magazines. And you're close to an absolutely disobedient, inappropriate relationship. Can I say, I know what that feels like. And I plead with you to heed these words. Don't. Don't go there. Marriage, you've entered into it, take it as seriously as you can and stick to those commitments. God judges the adulterer. How? One day, ultimately, but I believe now too in life by letting the, the inevitable natural consequences of that kind of behavior just take their course. The hurt, the discovery, the guilt, the shattered trust, the ill health, the shortened life, let's tell it like it is. There is grace and there is forgiveness and there is hope and there is power and there is strength. But you need to keep walking with the Lord. 
And sometimes under pressure, people find themselves in circumstances where stuff that they never suspected was buried deep down, it bubbles up to the surface again. Do you smell the rubber? This may be the last powerful thing that's said to you, and you've been listening to great teaching, but actually this is your battle. Be merely upright, because you are eternally accountable. And then the writer goes on to say, keep yourselves free of the love of money. The love of it. Nobody doesn't need money. Everybody needs a bit of money to survive. Uh, we need somewhere to live. We need to pay our bills. We, we need to be honorable as taxpayers and so on. But we live in a competitive world where people's value is so often measured by things, by possessions, by homes and, and bank balances and what they get and what they drive and so on. And getting stuck slowly, being always slow, always gradual. You don't suddenly wake up one morning and find that oh, you love money. And you never thought you did, oh. No, this creeps up on you gradually without you noticing. Don't get sucked into a love of money because it is incredibly dangerous to your spiritual life. But it's very interesting, in verses 5 and 6 there, how does the writer approach this? He starts with what God says. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because... And then he comes out with a quotation that you wouldn't think ever had anything to do with it. Because God has said, never will I leave you. And never will I forsake you. You people in our pressurized society often feel driven to acquire more as a form of security. I'm going to trust in that big insurance company. I'm going to get uh, more property. I'm going to get more stuff into the bank. And your security emotionally gradually comes to be placed in, in, in both kind of things, in your possessions and the stuff that you, you own. But month by month, we get stories of the crash, don't we? Are things go under? Stock market's going down? It's true, isn't it? Are you not saying big things like that in here? And so the writer says, now look, let me remind you of the promise. It's this, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, is actually a composite promise that was given not just once, but more than once. It was given to Jacob as he was leaving home to go look for a wife. You can read the story in Genesis 28, verse 15. The red appears to him in that night and says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going with you. I'm not going to forsake you. It was um, again repeated in Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 when Moses said, I'm not going into the land with you. The Lord has told me that I'm not going to cross Jordan. I'll go up onto Mount Nebo. I will look in. I will see what you're going to get, but I'm not going there. And they're all looking at him rather like the disciples looked at Jesus uh, in John 13 when he said, I'm going on. You're, you're staying a bit. And Moses reminded them, in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, Never will I leave you. I won't forsake you. The Lord had promised that. It was said to Joshua. Same thing. Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. Moses, my servant, is dead. Arise now. Go 
Hereward, cross the Jordan into the land. Split the thing. Campaign in the south, campaign in the north. Take the thing. You've never been this way before. You've never set foot there, but every place where your foot treads, I'll give it to you. <laughs> I'm not going to ever leave you every single step of the way. Our security is to be the Lord. So, verse 6, look down, look at it. So, we can say with confidence, we quote Psalm 118, verses 6 and 7, back to the Lord, who has been quoting these other three verses to us. So, we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can human beings do to me? Do you see? Don't let your mind and heart eventually become addicted to the securities which this world can offer because it ain't much. It's the best that others may have, but it's not for us. In the end, we need to keep our hearts free from the love of money. Verses 7 and 8. Learning from your leaders. Those who taught you the word of God. It's the, the aorist tense. They did it. Uh, there's a sense of completeness about that tense. They spoke the word of God to you. Perhaps by now they're dead. They've gone before, but while they were here, they taught you the word of God. Now says the writer, reflect on their lives, especially the outcome of their lives, their impact, where they ended, and imitate their faith. Don't always imitate their actions, but imitate their faith. Sometimes the actions of your leaders, you need to make sure so you don't imitate them. But imitate their faith. Some of the people in Hebrews chapter 11, you wouldn't want to imitate all their actions. But imitate their faith. That's why they're held up to us in that chapter. But what you must not do with your leaders, and greatly blessed with good, godly, visionary leaders, but what you must not do is adulate them and wish them back again once they've gone. Because, says verse 8, it is Jesus who is the one that continues. Yesterday, today, forever, always, and forever the same. Think about your leaders. They, in the past, preached the word of God to you, imitate their faith, but it's Jesus who continues, not them. He's always the same. You notice that verse 8 is put between 7 and 9. That's, a, that's an interesting math mathematical statement, isn't it? I was never very good at math, but I could count to 10 and get them in the right order. He's going to go on in verse 9 to talk about the, the, the false teachers. So he's spoken of the faithful, godly teachers. In verse 7, who taught you the word of God, he's going on to speak of the danger of false teachers but ultimately, verse 8, in the middle, our hope uh, doesn't lie in teachers or leaders at all, but in him. Eh? True. In him. He is, is our helper. And then we come to a, a difficult bit. If I was um, setting out this chapter as a meal, You've enjoyed, maybe you've eaten anyway, the hors d'oeuvre, the starter. Now we come to a rather more chewy bit. 
You will get onto the dessert uh, when, when we come closer to the end of the chapter, round about verse 20. But let me give you a chewy bit now. It is a grand address to these Hebrews who are facing the battle. Can I live and survive outside of the comfort zones of where I was brought up? We perhaps don't realize how difficult it was for those brought up as Jews in the Jewish community with the temple and the sacrifices and all that that we have, we have thought of. If we leave the familiarity of Judaism behind, which was recognized by the Romans as a permitted religion, how shall we then manage with such a communal people? We'll feel lonely and isolated and on our own. It is easier to stay with what we know. And the writer brings us through uh, um, an important argument at this point. First of all, he says, beware of strange doctrines. Verse 9, don't get carried away by all kinds of false teachings. When you go out of what you're familiar with, it's easy to get caught up uh, by some silly old nonsense. Especially teachings to do with food, what you eat. You know, feet on Fridays and and special diets and all that. And you think that those things are Christians. Christians. Those are the writer. It's grace that gives you strength. It's God's grace that really does your heart good. Not superstitious rules. And not foods associated with certain ceremonies. Judaism was a religion full of observances in the areas of meat and drink and cooking and so on as also uh, various other rules to do with washing and cleaning and special days in the calendar. All given by God. And they felt, therefore, that adhering strictly to those things pleased God because he had given those rules. And yet, at the very heart of Judaism, God himself had placed a ceremony that was designed to underline the ultimate emptiness of all of these food regulations. The thin offering in Leviticus 4 uh, speaks of that particular offering that deals with our guilt being one that was not to be eaten in any way by the priests or those who participated in it. In verse 11, uh, describing the, uh, the essential things of that offering, the priests carried blood, the blood of the sacrifice, up towards and to the edge of the most holy place. But the body of the offering, all of it, was carried outside the camp, uh, away from tabernacle and all the tents surrounding, and then eventually away from the solid temple that was built in Jerusalem. And no priest offering that offering ever had a single mouthful of it, not the sin offering. He was to eat of the fellowship offerings and the guilt offerings and the grain offerings and so on, but not that one. Now, what's the point of that? Well, from verse 12 onwards, um, the writer explains. You see, in order to sanctify his people with his own sacrifice, Jesus suffered outside the gate, outside the camp, outside the city. He did not offer himself as a sacrifice within Judaism, but outside, led in the temple. 
but entirely outside the camp. Now it's true that Judaism, with its sacrifices, were the picture of vital principles in all our dealings with God, Gentiles and Jews alike. But when it came to the sacrifice that puts our sin away, he was outside the camp, outside the gate, outside the rituals, the crucifixion was not near the temple, nor on its steps or gate. It was beyond the city walls. The writer is simply explaining that. It is a historical fact. And now drawing out the implications. Those who want to identify with Judaism and all the sacrifices conducted and done by Jewish priests from the one tribe, all that was going on inside the city, they have no part in his sacrifice. If you want to remain under the old covenant, you cannot share in the sacrifice of Christ. And so verse 10 says, the priests who minister in the old covenant temple cannot eat of the sacrifices that are burned outside the city. God has actually had enough of animal sacrifices and special holy days, and ceremonial washings, and priestly vestments and garments. He doesn't want it anymore. If you want to share in his sacrifice, says the writer, we must go outside, away, verse 13, even if it means misunderstanding, disgrace, loss of family, pride and position, respect, security, our city, says verse 14, is no longer Jerusalem. It's no longer the establishment. It's no longer the old order. We have followed an outlaw into rejection. Instead, it is one that will last forever, the heavenly Jerusalem. The sacral city, Jerusalem, was about, in, in a generation or so, to be downtrodden, overrun, downtrodden by the Gentiles, for centuries to come, smashed by the Romans, and God would put no other sacred city in its place. The days of the, the sacred state in which religion and politics are, are two sides of the same thing, they're over, as far as God is concerned. How much happier would Europe or my own country and indeed the world have been, if Christians had never tried to go back to that sort of thing. The mingling of the power of politics and the church together. Trying to, to marry Christianity with political power and setting up cities on earth. Rome, Byzantium, Geneva, as a sort of religio-political headquarters. Just think of the oppression of minorities and perhaps especially of evangelicals that there has been. And all the empire building and the wilderness that has sprung up over the years that could have been avoided because of this human instinct to try and mix our religion with political power. We're to leave all that we go outside the city. We follow the outlaw. We bear disgrace if need be. We go outside the camp. This is his appeal 
at the end to these Jewish believers. You're just going to have to turn your back on that which is ultimately opposed to your Saviour, your Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. True worship, on the other hand, he comes to then in verses 15 to 19. Last night, um, in uh, mountain, what do you call it, mountain camp. Thank you. And the mountain top, mountain view, mountain view, mountain camp, we had a we had a very good question. How do we really worship God now? And these verses from 15 to 19, having placed old establishment traditional Jewish involvement, worship still according to the, the terms and conditions of the old covenant, place that in their past. He now says, now look, I want to talk to you about the worship that really pleases God. If you're to worship him in spirit and truth, let's think about worship for a minute or two. And he gives, well, let me suggest two, three, four things that are integral to real godly worship. Number one, it's the fruit of lips that continually offer praise to God. Honoring him, acknowledging him, walking with him. You know, I don't think that God has, has made anything more genuinely beautiful than a humble, holy believer who walks with God and who, from time to time, will point to the Lord in what they say. Such a person is beautiful, fantastic. This is the beginnings of worship, the fruit of lips that continually, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whenever, Offer praise to God. Secondly, worship also consists of doing good in practical service. Verse 16. Doing good. Doing works of righteousness. Evangelicals can be so paranoid about justification by faith that it actually pushes them towards disobedience. They get unbalanced. We need to do good. We are created for good works. Let us be people who are kind, loving, sacrificial, amongst our neighbours, amongst our friends, amongst other believers. Let's do good works. It is part of your worship. We were thinking last night with, with the people in <clears throat> on the mountain <clears throat> about Romans 12, 1 and 2. I, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Offer your bodies, your bodies now, you as a living sacrifice. How different this is. Jewish sacrifices tended to end up dead. Last year I was in Pakistan at the time of the festival of Eid. I'd watched the animals being brought in from the countryside. In that one country they slaughter, one morning, about a hundred million animals. They've painted them with nice colours, orange and red, they fed them lovingly, they tethered them, it's just so like the Passover, they tethered them for a few days outside the house, and the children stroke them, and are kind to them, and feed them special leaves. And then early on the morning of the great day of the feast, someone comes along and cuts their throats, and the streets are running with blood. There are mounds of guts 
and heads. And you sacrifice according to how much honor and worth you, you want to earn. Not just lambs and goats and sheep, but calves and bullocks and donkeys and camels. Slaughter the lot. It is appalling. I'm fed up with it, says God. But what I want is you living sacrificially, a living sacrifice. Letting your mind be transformed and renewed by the, the mercies of God and by the Spirit of God so that you actually in life prove what is the good, pleasing, perfect will of God. And it may involve doing good works and suffering a little bit and giving generously, giving your children to the mission field. Giving your substance that other people may hear the gospel. Giving space in your home, sacrificing your time. This is worship. And also, can I say to you, that your worship involves God's submission to godly leaders. Verse 17. Those that care for you, they watch over you. I sit with the elders in my own church. We, we, they really are good mates of mine. We, we are friends. We begin every meeting that we have together. We meet fortnightly. Uh, we begin with an hour of Bible and prayer. Because we want to be submitted to the Word of God. We talk about the issues in the church. We pray and we pray for people. Sometimes I, I listen to my brothers praying with such care. Sometimes tears. For people in the church. Most of you don't have the slightest idea probably what goes on in uh, leaders meetings of your church. But very often it is that same sort of stuff. It isn't just dealing with the money and propping up the buildings and, and all that. It's care for people. They watch over you. They care for you. And as part of your sacrificial life, as part of your worship, part of godliness, you are to obey them. Because they do what they do as men, as women who have to give an account. The Lord will ask them about their leadership and ask them why they did what they did. They will have to give an account. And notice here that the responsibility for making the operation of the church a joy is the congregations. It, it's not... The leaders, you know, we sit there and think, well, it's up to you, you know, the vicar or the, the minister. It's up to you to make us happy. No, quite the opposite. The responsibility for that church being a joyful place lies with the congregation. Obey your leaders, submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. If you crush your leaders with expectations they can't fulfill, demands that nearly kill them. In the end, you suffer. You need to be amongst those that contribute strongly to the joy in that community. And verse 18, pray for evangelists. And pray for the gospel to go forward, declared by people of good conscience. That too, I think, is part of true worship. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you. Do you see how worship is so much more than just singing? It's 
It's, it's a big thing to do with your relationships, your submission. Yes, that comes out of your love, but also the good works that you do uh, in life. And then finally, he comes in verse 20, um, to pray for blessing on those that uh, have been reading his works. He just asked for their prayers for him, verse 18, and now he prays for them. You know, if we are ever to be made holy, we've had conventions on it, we've read books on it, there are books on the bookstall there, Jerry Bridges stuff and so on. If we are ever to be made holy, we will need a shepherd. The one whom Peter in, in uh, 1 Peter 2.25 calls the, the shepherd and overseer of our souls, the supreme shepherd, we need him to, as Psalm 23 puts it, guide us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He wants to guide us for the sake of his own reputation. And so God raised Jesus to be that great shepherd. In my own um, church back in England, we, um, we had, uh, just a couple of years ago, three shepherds in the congregation. Uh, we're, we're a sort of mixed town and rural area, and there were three people whose business was shepherding. And so one day, I totally surprised them. They're, they're very um, non-speaky people, and uh, if I'd given them the slightest warning, they would have probably remembered some shepherding that they had to do and, and gone. <laughs> And so I suddenly bounced on them while I was uh, preaching and asked the three of them to stand up and said, now look, what are the main duties and responsibilities of a shepherd? What do you do? And immediately, without any problem at all, they came out with five things. The main responsibilities of a shepherd, according to our shepherds, are one, to provide good nourishing food. Two, to attend to the cleaning of the sheep. Sheep never clean themselves. They can't do it. It's not in their brain. You watch most cats clean themselves. Some dogs do. The baboons occasionally. You'll never see a sheep cleaning itself. They need help. You need to wash them. You need to clip the bits off that get all dirty. They need help. Uh, they need protection from predators. Both diseases and things that might attack from outside. You need to attend to proper breeding. A well-fed, contented, secure flock led by a good shepherd will always produce more lambs. A ewe that might produce one, under these circumstances, might produce two or even three. And the, third, the last thing, fourth, uh, no, fifth thing that uh, they came out with was a good shepherd will be um, in some sort of a relationship with the sheep. Sheep generally are short-sighted, but they have quite good ears. They can recognize voices, and they recognize a shepherd's voice. And so a shepherd won't, I mean, in New Zealand, yeah, they fly around in helicopters because they've got 70 million sheep and only 3 million people. <clears throat> yes. Produces decent rugby teams there, doesn't it? But actually in our smaller farms, and certainly in the Middle Eastern area, uh, shepherds would talk. I've watched, I was sitting on the top of a mountain in the Pyrenees, and there was an old French farmer uh, came along with his sheep and they would sort of be cropping the grass walking around him and then he sat down and, and I was way up on a crag and I was looking down at him and I watched him calling different sheep by name and they sort of look up, you know they knew his voice 
Those are some of the marks of people who are to be in servant leadership in our churches. Attending to good food. Attending to people staying clean together. Regularly reminding people of the cleansing that there is in the blood of Christ and how to be reconciled, to be offering forgiveness and conferring it on one another, to be clean. Protection from predators and so on. And the writer in verses 2021 is now calling down the blessing of God, made a God of peace. You know, each of the things that we need are here to nourish us as the sheep of his pasture and to protect us. He reminds them of the character of God, the God of peace, made a God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus. We're reminded immediately in this blessing of the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. That verse that came just a little bit before where David started with us this morning. Securing our redemption. The resurrection of Jesus, his triumph over the evil one. And the work now of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus. Equipping you with everything good for doing his will. I understand the word means to mend. May that great shepherd mend you. Like he would use for the mending of necks. Did you come here needing a bit of mending? A few holes. Perhaps distress in recent fishing and you've got torn. Perhaps in relationships. Perhaps there's just stuff been going on. And you came here this weekend needing a bit of reassurance. Needed mending. Needed help. He'll do it. May the God of peace, through his eternal covenant, sealed and established by the blood of Christ which has been carried by the eternal spirit into the most holy place in the universe. May he who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of you the sheep, may he mend you and equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He will supply what is necessary for you as you go and repair what is broken. I urge you to bear with the writer of this letter in his word of exhortation. For he's written to you only a short letter. He goes on, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. He was in prison. He's out now. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people, those from Italy and other places. Send their greetings. May grace be with you all. Amen. Father, thank you for your word to us. May we be not just hearers. We can enjoy the taste of a good meal, but we want to swallow it down and digest it to feed on Christ in our hearts by faith, with thanksgiving. Strengthen us, we pray, for your purposes in the real world. We trust that you will build up and protect and use us. Use our faith 
as we walk with you, as we take courageous steps into new challenges, as we face dilemmas, opportunities. Oh God, have we pray a response from this Katoomba Convention that is worthy of the sacrifice of Christ. For your name's sake, Amen. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.